Hey guys, welcome back to the Phil Krause Survival Podcast. I'm your host, Mike. I'm here with today's co-host, Kurt Hohan. <laughs> today's episode is part two of Natural Disasters. Don't forget Kevin. Oh yeah, yeah don't he's, forget Kevin. Oh, he's how we can got, I forget? We have a Force Recon Marine <laughs> present. No, we're just kidding. We've been busting <laughs> Kevin's balls for like the last uh, ninety days, joking around with him about yeah. being a Force Recon Marine. How can I forget he's not in the room? I feel his presence with his body. Yes, yeah. his heat. His heat, his thermal energy. The big heat. The big his, his call his call signs. Big, the big heat. heat. The big heat. All right, so back to business. Today's episode is part two of natural disasters, and what we're going to do is talk about and finish up our conversation about preparation for a natural disaster, which includes a whole bunch of things that we talked about. In part one, uh, you know, number one, if you haven't listened to part two, well, we're recording part two, so you haven't obviously <laughs> listened to part two. They're like, we're listening to part two right now. Yeah, if you haven't listened to part two, listen to it again. <laughs> um, but also, you want to listen to part one, which covered food, water, shelter, you know, some worst case considerations. Uh, and, you know, the, the whole intent of this episode is to get you guys set up for success when it comes to natural disaster prep. Some of the highlights that we talked about in part one had to do mainly with understanding that when you plan and prepare, it's for your geographical location. And that could change, obviously, no matter your position, whether it's here in the States or overseas, you have to plan for that consideration. And you, there's no one end-all, be-all for natural disaster. So, you know, we have a lot of good input and experience from guys that are here on the podcast today. You know, Kurt's background in special operations and uh, Kevin's background in emergency preparedness, uh, being a firefighter paramedic for the last forever. Yeah, he's forever. old. He's old. I am old. What is forever, Kevin? Remind us how long you've been doing that job. Uh, I've been a firefighter since '94 okay. and a firefighter paramedic since '99. That's yeah, crazy. So, so the bottom line is you've seen a lot of shiat. Yeah. My yes. girlfriend was born in 91, so it makes you feel better. <laughs> my, my oldest daughter was born in 91. <laughs> oh, wow. Oh, that's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> are we Facebook friends? <laughs> hey, so when you guys are dealing in this realm of survival preparedness, you know, these are highlights of, of considerations that we want you to take away. And it's important for you guys to, I mean, you could listen to this and get 10% of it, 20% of it. Or you could write it down and actually make a plan. You could actually execute a plan of action instead of just listening. So we advise you, if you're going to take this serious, you write down what we're talking about, you make a list, and then you check it twice. Again, food, water, shelter, we talked about part one. Today, we're going to highlight points of contact, fallback plans, go bags, comms, a whole bunch of good stuff. So we hope you guys enjoy this episode. All right, so points of contact. You know, points of contact is obviously... Uh, it's people that you know in your circle that you have, you know, potential relationships with that are on your comms or on your phone that you could reach out to family and friends that are dependable. And the reason we put points of contact as a, a worst case consideration is because when it comes to communications, that is the first thing you need to do. Number one, to advise people of your situation, your, your, we call it a sit rep, your situation report of your status of where you're at your disposition, your, your composition, if you're healthy, and then potentially establish a link up point to get you out of that situation. With the consideration that when shit happens in a natural disaster, communications go out. Now, Kevin, with your experience, especially with being a first responder in a natural disaster, I know that communication grids go down because mainly, you know, when electricity goes down, towers go down, 
and everybody becomes displaced because they don't have no comms plans in civilian life. Right. So the uh, when we had those hurricanes in 2004 that we talked about last uh, episode, we actually had uh, civilians, uh, ham radio operators that were at, like at every third station because our county, like I said last episode, is 72 miles long. So we have literally uh, the northernmost station is 72 miles from the southernmost station. So you've got to have comms and way to get to all those stations. So they actually you said ham radio, right? <clears throat> yes. So ham. what's a ham radio for people who don't know? Um, it's like amateur radio bands. It's I, I believe it's in the 400 megahertz realm. I'm, yeah. I, I don't have a whole lot of experience. We with got it. it. You're but not they, a combo guy. Yeah. yeah. But they yeah. use antennas and they set up a base station, which is able to create through relay stations Correct. communications across across the horizon, across the earth, so you can communicate from line of sight, right? Right, correct. And then each of our each of our vehicles not only has the 800 trunked radios like most public safety does now, but we have the UHF and the VHF radios that are line of sight type radios that you can still have comma with. So that's a, that's a big thing uh, with public safety, especially like with a gigantic county like ours, you have to be able to relay messages from one end to the other um accurately and get that information and in 2004 uh the cell towers wouldn't didn't have i guess you could say the capabilities that they do now uh because that was another thing like very few people i, I want to say the at&t at that time believe it or not no, no no i apologize i believe it was verizon was the only cell service so there were 30 guys at the station that i was at we were all camping out at the station and we would man vehicles ever so many hours and give each other time off but there was literally only i, I want to say it was verizon at the time that was the only cell service because i had at that time nextel was big in our fire department everybody had a uh, sprint and nextel those soon as, as soon as the wind started it was almost like nextel went down so there was literally one guy in the station that was letting all 30 of us use his phone you know, to make calls to our family and find out if our family had made it to where they were going safely. There's different types of networks, which include GSM, CDMA, depending on the service provider that you have. And when towers go down, you know, it could be one relay tower from, you know, a, a, a base station somewhere off, off grid, completely out of your location. But if that relay goes down and it can't hop it from the main base station, you're not going to get communications. And it, it might be intermittent at best. So, you know, what Kev's highlighting is, you know, you, you might want to have a, a radio plan, a VHF or UHF radio plan that you could utilize in the event that you need to communicate with family or friends. You know, another thing that is not really utilized nowadays because everybody's dependence on, on the Internet and GSM and CDMA is an emergency radio. When things are happening we have emergency broadcast systems that are played on AM and FM uh, radios. And if you have, you know, whether it's a, you know, me and Kurt have used hand cranked versions of these downrange where you can get uh, radio stations and you don't have to have battery powder in the event of emergency. So having one of those is, is critical for receiving information. And then obviously for communication, you know, family member to family member, you might want to have a comms plan built into that, right? right. And, I, and I actually have a radio, just like you're saying, that we actually, um, <clears throat> in Florida, uh, years ago, even when my kids were small, um, 
being in emergency management, you see how many people are truly unprepared. They wait till three days before a hurricane's supposed to hit to go get all their supplies. And Bread they, and milk. Yeah, <laughs> the bread and milk, big screen TVs, you know, <laughs> you know stuff, the normal stuff. <laughs> the normal stuff you need to survive. But um, I, I got a hand crank radio years ago. You know, it's got a light that I that is actually built into it, and it's a neat little device that has your AM, FM. It even has uh, your NOAA weather station, so you can pick that up and get info while you're doing that. So, living in Florida is probably much like uh, California. You know, you have to, you know what natural disasters you're prone to. So you absolutely have to be prepared for those things. Yeah, it's like we talked about in the uh, the first episode is geographically where you're located and then making a good plan based off of that geographic location. Something else I was thinking about that comes to mind with points of contact is, uh, and it kind of leads us into the, to our, our next topic, which is kind of a fallback plan, but even points of contact outside of the area uh, that you're in and maybe what that looks like is you have family in the surrounding area. So for example, if I'm in California an earthquake hits and for whatever reason it displaces my family and I, I have family in Nevada, you know, those people are on that points of contact kind of roster, what we call in the military, a points of contact roster. And, um, you know, obviously if you have the ability to, to still send them a message and letting them know like, Hey, we're leaving and we're getting out of here, you know, and, and that way it's a, it's a preparation thing for them as well. Yeah. I think with communications, something that's not, you know, really considered uh, whatsoever is not only the communications between family and friends, but also the communications to uh, first responders, right? Cause right. when you, when you're doing things as a first responder, you're trying to get information from the public through your dispatch. And so it's it's almost like real time intelligence that's coming. It is in real time intelligence that's coming in, which is updating your situation, and that that is a critical piece of emergency response, right? Right, and I know, and and I talk a lot about hurricanes just because that's our natural disaster that we're best prepared for there in Florida. But uh, once the winds hit, I believe it's thirty five to forty miles an hour somewhere in that. Once they're sustained at that we stop responding to emergencies like, really yeah because of the danger on right because of the danger with us and uh in our county we have a barrier island that that uh that we're on as well and this last hurricane that we had this past year that came through that they did extra staffing they actually cut the water supply to parts of that barrier island because they didn't if anything got breached they didn't want the salt water getting into those pipes and there was actually a house that burnt down. The fire department got there and literally watched the house burn down because there's no water supply. And we only carry about 750 gallons of water on the average fire truck, which sounds like a lot, but when a house is on fire, you pull a couple of uh, the lines that we do for attack and it's and it's it's gone within a couple of minutes. That's crazy, man. That's, that's uh, also good information to have. What are some considerations for comms plans, Kurt, leading into you know, you said this whole POC emergency, uh, emergency roster, what are considerations for those people that are in your network and what kind of information would you relay to them? So, you know, I kind of look at this uh, in some similar ways that we did in the military. Obviously, you know, everybody's primary these days is um, their cell phones, right? Social media, we're constantly getting updates uh, via social media and our cell phones. So obviously that would be the primary. Um, as potentially things start to break down communications wise, 
um, you know, obviously you've got to have an alternate contingency and emergency plan. So kind of what those look like uh, in my mind is um, some type of a radio system, uh, you know, whether it be line of sight or, um, you know, different radios that, that we've seen handheld walkie talkies, something to that effect um, where I can continue to communicate with my family um, and then, you know, potentially be able to communicate with first responders um, and, and other folks of that nature. Now, as far as an extended uh, communications plan, maybe, um, you know, maybe that that communications plan with family out of state is, hey, the the bottom line is, is if a natural disaster happens and we have the ability uh, to leave, have the expectation that we're going to come to you. You know, so maybe so no comms yeah, plan. So, yeah. yeah. So in no communications, you know, the the expectation is just, hey, we're coming. So that's it. Yeah, that's pretty. Uh, it ties into special operations and how we did evasion or compromise type plans where we had to move across terrain and potentially under no comms and meeting at a time and place, which was the makeup for no communication. Like, hey, I'm not, I'm not going to be able to communicate if I can't communicate then expect me at a certain time and place. Also interesting is, you know, Kurt described the inner communications, which is really important to have inner comms to be able to communicate to family members that are, you know, maybe displaced by vehicles. You might have your family in another vehicle because you unloaded the house because of a natural disaster. And now you're driving together and you have to be able to communicate, hey, we're, we're navigating to this direction or hey, we're gonna stop or we're not stopping or, hey, this is a danger area, we need to continue movement. Those important pieces of communication are critical, especially if you're working with a family who, you know, who's not used to operating because you haven't done a rehearsal to do this stuff because you have kids and a wife. So intercoms is just as important as Kurt described as the external comms to have potentially somebody outside of that ring that you can contact and at least know, hey, if, if you don't communicate with me, we're going to have a time and place to link up. That leads us into the... Uh, Next topic, which is fallback. All right, so fallback is, you know, in special operations, we call it a safe house. We call it a contingency plan. It's basically having a place that we're going to link up at that that might have a forward operating capability in the military where we, we can sustain ourselves with food, with water, with shelter. And then that is utilized as a hub to either, you know, isolate ourselves and, and start operating out of that place or as a uh, relay station to be able to hop to another location to get further away from the danger area. Yeah. So like a rally point. So like a rally point. Exactly. So Kurt, you know, talking about the special operations take on it, which I think is, you know, no matter how you, you look at it, the way that we did safe houses can be tied into how you could do it with a natural disaster. Safe house doesn't have to be, have to be a safe house. Hell, it could be grandma's house on the farm in a rural area away from the city. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, any, you know, I think the more creative you can be with your imagination and as long as it's something, I think the big thing about all of this is being able to practice the plan and and then actually, you know, planning for a situation like that. So even if it's grandma's house, you know, hey, the plan has been talked over with grandma and then, uh, you know, if we've got to go there, she's got enough, you know, food, water, um, and whatever else it takes to sustain the people that are coming there, you know, and, and you could look at that. It doesn't just have to be grandma's house, right? It could be, you know, aunts, uncles, cousins, family, friends, 
But I think the big takeaway here is that you make that plan and then those people are included in that plan, you know, and then you actually rehearse it. It's important to do those things. And, um, you and know, it could you, be fun too, right? I mean, yeah, you don't exactly. have to make it. Could be family time, you know? Yeah. What I think about is, hey, you know, your wife and, and children are displaced from you. And on a whim, you know, you, maybe you don't let your wife and kid know and you say, hey, Irene or some pro word communication that, hey, it's time to do stop whatever you're doing and to start making movement to grandma's house or to whatever your established safe house is, which will exercise and flush out a whole bunch of things that might go wrong. Like, hey, I started to travel and I didn't have enough gas and I had to get gas. And what happens if there's no gas station? And, you know, hey, I started movement, but I didn't have enough food and water. And that brings up a whole bunch of other planning considerations for maybe things that you need to do to fill that gap. I could I could already uh, think about, you know, our next topic, which is uh, go bags that, hey, you might want to have a go bag with food and water to sustain that travel, you know, to your safe house to where you ha- you might have a cache stored at grandma's house. Hell, it might even be grandma's own food and water because she's out from the danger area. Um, but those are things like Kurt said, you have to plan and you have to rehearse. It doesn't make sense just formulating a plan over a conversation over dinner without actually being able to execute that. If grandma doesn't know the plan, then uh, and you show up at grandma's house, she might not have the food uh, available. We love you, grandma. We love you, grandma. <laughs> we love you. Make plenty of food. So an emergency response, an emergency preparedness, when we look at fallback plans, and we had talked about a little bit in sheltering, you know, they establish safe areas, right? Safe Correct. zones. You know, you know, I would always kind of was strange to me, even like in a, a torrential storm or disaster area, they make local, you know, satellite safe houses as like schools. And, you know, you talked about the school that became Correct. a disaster. Why would they make that in the middle of the disaster area? And is it because there's no other option? And is there coordination with other counties and other cities to be like, hey, you know, if we have a disaster here, we're going to flush all of our people to your city or state. Right. So what happens talking about fall fallback plans in 2004, um, and then we've had a couple other hurricanes since then, our fire stations that are actually on the barrier island that literally sit right across A1A from Cocoa Beach. A1A? Those, Beachfront <laughs> Avenue. Yep, yeah. that's right. <laughs> uh, those stations, we actually evacuate those stations. They fall back to stations that are on mainland. So they fall back anywhere from six to eight miles to the station that's inland. Because those stations, like this hurricane that just came through this past year, um, it actually it actually veered off at the last second and wound up not pounding our county in Volusia County where you grew up. It yeah. actually pounded them up there in New Smyrna Beach and Daytona Beach. It actually literally washed sections of A1A into the ocean. Like A1A did, does not exist still right now. They're rebuilding that stuff. So... In emergency management, you have to have all those contingency plans that, hey, once the storm gets to a cat three, we're evacuating. Um, and the crazy thing is, as we evacuate those stations and they tell the citizens, hey, your fire department and your law enforcement are evacuating, you know, it's not safe for them. But as you guys know, you know, in here in America, we can't make somebody get out of their house. I mean, they have ultimately have the option, but they're told, Hey, when you call nine one one, nobody's come right. Nobody's coming for you. Yeah, it's, you're, you're there by yourself. This is uh, <clears throat> you know, 
when I hear, you know, we've got a guy here that's been a first responder for what, over 20 years. And, you know, I just think it's an interesting takeaway that um, when shit gets bad, even the first responders leave. So if you're not planning, you know, for the worst case scenario um, and you have a family, even if it's just you, uh, you're not doing the right thing. I mean, you need to have a plan um, and make sure that it's a good one and that it's rehearsed so that way, you know, you have the best chances of survival. Right, and like the old cliche goes, if you're if you're failing to plan, you're planning to fail. Right. If you don't have a don't have a uh, plan, it's gonna be a t-shirt. No. Oh, good job. Yeah. Full craft right there. Um, so yeah, all good information, and that leads us kind of into. Uh, we talked about a little bit to go back, right? It's the supply on the go. So let's go there. All right. So go bags, you know, we have a podcast on go bags where we talk about, you know, the staples of survival, the, you know, the absolute necessary things to put in a go bag. And then, you know, all the things that enable your survival, which are added benefits depending on your geographical location, i.e. you're in a winter environment, you're in the middle of a cold weather geographical region, you know, where it gets, you know, below freezing all the time, you're going to have the staples of survival, which is, is, you know, for us, a space blanket to maintain warmth, but that's not good enough in that environment. So you have to have a fart sack, which is known as a sleeping bag. Yep. And you have to be able to retain (laughs) your body heat. Um, And you might want to even upgrade certain specific things in your fire sourcing. You know, for us, a a, a staple is a fire starter but maybe that's not good enough. Maybe you need like a propane lighter uh, in order to make fire in that condition. So that stuff's all, all important. From your experience in, in special operations, like when you guys did these bundles, these prepped bundles, what were the priorities of work for prepping these bags? Um, so, you know, it depends on what it was. If it was a bundle, which Mike called it a, uh, a speed ball, typically, um, obviously we're in combat. If we needed a, a combat resupply, it was pretty ammunition, um, and explosive heavy, if you will. So it could have been mortar rounds. It could have been five, five, six, it could have been seven, six, two. Um, but, uh, talking about, you know, having a, a speedball package, if you will, for your, whether it's your vehicle or your house, um, basically the principle of that is, is, is having something. Um, and we've talked about this before in different podcasts, but it's different levels of uh, survival gear so you may um, have stuff on your person or um, and then the next level of that is if you have to bug out i go to my vehicle i've got a go bag in there and it's got a fire starter it's got um you know water purification stuff it's got a mylar space space blanket i've got a small knife or multi-tool in there um or a small field craft survival kit in your bag and then you know other things geographically that you want uh, for the area that you're in one thing I talked about on, on the, the Go Bag podcast, and I'll just highlight it here is, you know, a Go Bag, which is a portable or man packable version of uh, survival, can always be upgraded depending on your platform, which leads, you know, conveniently into the next topic, which is mobility. If you have a Go Bag, you don't want to just, you know, have just that system in your uh, vehicle. You want to have something more robust, an upgraded version of that. And it doesn't have to be cumbersome. It doesn't have to be a Pelican case full of survival equipment. It just needs to be a little bit more robust. Like, for example, if you're carrying food, well, if you're carrying a power bar in your go bag because it's for man packable or on the go, then maybe you would have a couple 
the MREs that are in the back of your vehicle. Or a and mountain house. A mountain house mail, preferably, because you don't want to <laughs> cork yourself up uh, with an MRE. But y- y- the point is, look at that mobility platform. You know, it, we, I look at it in the context of, of uh, survival medicine. If I have an IFAC, an individual uh, carried medical kit, it's for immediate trauma, typically on myself or my buddy. But if I get injured, I want an ambulance full of shit. I don't want just an IFAC. So that's what your platform or your mobility platform is for. It's it's for enhancing your overall capabilities, especially when it comes to survival. Uh, and we recommend Toyota. Um, <laughs> um, yeah. Um, so, you know, leading out of Go Bags, because, you know, we, we won't spend too much time on it because we the podcast is there. If you guys search the Phil Cross Survival Podcast, it's, it's like the, in the top 10 episodes. Definitely search that and listen to that to, to get more information. Leading into mobility, no breaks. We'll, we'll just go straight into it because it, there's a good tie-in with the mobility platforms. And Kevin, you, you've experienced this because you operated out of a vehicle, I mean, basically your whole career. I mean, wh- whether it was in force recon on a fire truck <laughs> or it was um, uh, on the go as a firefighter or paramedic, you guys operated out of those platforms with your equipment. Why is mobility important in a survival type situation, especially when it comes to uh, evacuation, when it comes to uh, getting off off the grid? Well, mobility plays into a big part, even, you know, with us at the fire department, not only do we, the mobility aspect, they actually, we have mechanics uh, sporadically placed at stations as well for mobility, because obviously if you start getting high water, you know, our trucks can only go through so high a water, you know, you've, you both have experience, you know, with, with vehicles. And so you have to bring in the mechanics that they actually stay at the station with us and they hang out um, and they have to keep those trucks running. So we actually even have a gas and a diesel truck that the fire department has that can go to stations uh, because every one of our stations has a gigantic generator that'll run the station. Like you won't even know, that, that there's no electricity anywhere else. It's gigantic generators and those fuel tanks will run our station for about 72 hours and then they're going to need refueling. So we, we have to, uh, <clears throat> they have to plan on those fuel trucks coming to all 35 stations that are 72 miles apart and all over the place refilling those. So mobility plays a very big part, you know, even in your private owned vehicle, you know, where we live there in Florida, it's a six and a half-ish hour drive to Alabama where me and my wife are from that we have land there. So I know her car, if she had to, worst case scenario, it actually can make it from our house to that land on one tank of gas. Now you're you're almost sucking fumes. You got about a hundred miles left in the in the tank of gas. But it's nice to know that, like, going back to the fallback, that, that your plan, we've already timed that out. And I timed it out years ago with every vehicle that we had of how far can we get to our safe place on the tank of gas that you have in your vehicle right now. That's squared that, away, man. Yeah, that's interesting. So when you when you look at that, you know, you've experienced this in uh, emergency preparedness. The first place people hit when they're getting out of town is a gas station, gas stations, right? Yep. And then they become backlogged and you know, tanks run out and then, you know, people are all trying to get out of the area. Yes. Um, is there any advice that you give for people? Like, you know, do they need to stay tuned to something? Is there a, a first broadcast that takes place? Is there some place they can go on the internet to be, and in order to uh, get ahead of this? 
I'm at the biggest thing. Is it called the Weather Channel? Yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm at to, to not sound cheesy. Really, is is to keep up on your current events. You know, don't one day show up to work and you're like, oh hey, what are you guys doing? Oh shit, we're uh, getting ready for the uh, hurricane that's going to be here in two days. You know, that's what. Uh, um, like I say, my hurricane kit that I've always kept since we lived in Florida has all the supplies. And every year I would go to that kit, make sure everything was still there. Like, you know, if you needed a C battery throughout the year, you may go rob it from the hurricane kit. Well, the beginning of hurricane season, you make sure. And then Were you robbing brownies out of your hurricane kit? <laughs> I was. <laughs> There's nothing in the house. You need a brownie and you got a hurricane kit. <laughs> Imagine in the middle of the night, he takes the L flashlight with him yeah. there and he's like, <laughs> honey, what are you doing? Nothing, oh, to nothing. See here. nothing to see here. Move along. Go back to sleep. <laughs> Sorry. But, uh, I digress. But, no, but with the hurricane kit, um, you know, I always, um, that was always my little thing that I did. I would make sure that all of our preparedness as a family, um, that, that we were prepared as a family. I would always have. And is it, was it man packable or something you just do in the car? Um, it was, it was, you know, we had, I always had a contingency plan to, Hey, if you guys are going to stay here, um, I actually had a, a lot of people don't realize, but your standard bathtub that are in most houses, if, if you obviously clean that out good and you run it full, that's a hundred gallons of water. The standard bathtub holds a hundred gallons of water. Dude, that's like the smartest thing I've ever heard. So if you have, if you're in a survival situation in your home and you know water is going to get contaminated or the potential, meaning overflow of salt water, over. fill that shit up and clog it. Yeah. And yeah. don't pee in it. <laughs> yeah. Don't pee in it. Exactly. And you could drink, all, or, I mean, you could just dump a little bit of Clorox in there and, and, and kill all the bacteria in there. Do you pee in your bathtub? Just curious. Sometimes. <laughs> sometimes. Sometimes when he's soaking, he is. Sometimes. Just so relaxed, you know? <laughs> just, yeah, just get relaxed, man. It's part of the therapy. But that's, uh, I mean, that's that's, that's like a good idea, of, dude. Yeah, and that's one of those crazy things that, like, when you think about it, you're like, oh, crap. Are we still talking about peeing in the tub? Because uh, it seemed like. Right, yeah. I feel like the, the lines are blurred now. Yeah, I, mean, I know. Okay. We're, we're back to actually using the tub as, oh, yeah. as okay. potable water okay. that you can actually yeah, use. Sense. Makes sense. Um, so that's that's a little life hack or whatever you want to call it that that's actually great to know. And you know, like if if you have obviously the garden tubs that people have these days that they want to soak, that um, some of those even hold even more. Oh, if you get a sun, more, right? Yeah, like a, a thousand gallons of water. That's yeah. called the one percenter. Like the the little tips that kind of you're like the light comes on. You're like that's a one percenter. Damn, for dude, sure. that's a that's a pretty good. Uh, t that's probably the best survival tip I've heard in a couple hours. Right. <laughs> Yeah. And that, I mean, that obviously that's only an urban thing. And that's if you're sheltering in place yeah, that you yeah. would have that water. Well, yeah. And you want to get it as soon as possible, right? Because yeah, I mean, yeah. it, as soon as stuff starts going bad, it's the, the infrastructure is deteriorating and you don't have second chances in that. Yeah. And it deteriorates quicker than what people realize. Um, I never realized how dark it can get on, in Florida on the beach until we had those hurricanes in 04 and the station that I was at was in the city of Cape Canaveral, you know, five or six blocks inland from the beach. And when we would turn on to A1A to get to go south, to go on a call, it was literally like looking into a black abyss. I mean, there were, there were nobody had, a, there was no lights, no nothing. So, you know, that's, that's always your mobility. You've, You've got to make sure everything you've got to, you've got to account for everything that could possibly go wrong. And you've got to have something that you could mitigate that with. If you plan on going mobile, once these things happen, 
we you know me and me and Kurt are doing an uh, off the road survival course in Moab this year in September, and we just had this course in Fernley, Nevada. Off the beaten path. Off the beaten path. Yeah, that's the name. Yeah, it was a good, it was a good course, and it it was a lot of fun because we met a lot of people from different backgrounds and experiences, and we did a lot of good training. You know, it's a two day course. Uh, we did overlanding. And we actually just did, you know, actual overlanding, right? We just, we didn't get the, we came off the trail. And that was interesting because I, I even learned a lot through that process about recovery and things that I need to do. And we, you know, whether it's our course or, or just on your own, we, we think, you know, going out and with an objective is some, some of the best learning takeaways that you can get through this process. You know, if you get your vehicle, you load it down and you say, hey, I'm going to do this camping trip and go off the beaten path or go off trail in this area, you're gonna learn a lot about yourself and about your equipment and capabilities. So definitely encourage you guys to do that. You know, obviously we'll, we'll be advertising that course um, in the near future. So definitely come come out and join us. Moving on, we're gonna talk about med. And it, again, this, this all ties into all the equipment uh, that you need to have on hand, but we're just gonna go straight into it again because you know, both of you guys have a myriad of experience I'm gonna go to Kurt on this one. And you know, TCCC is something that, you know, Kevin teaches, but we've done our whole military careers. You know, in the infantry, it was combat lifesaver. In uh, special operations, it was TCCC and even live tissue. You know, going through your, your kit bag and the things that are important to have, what are your primary pieces of equipment that you use when it comes to, you know, laying out your own med kit? Yeah, so so for me individually, you know, I still run my med kit just like I did when I was in uh, uh, special operations. So I've got, you know, a tourniquet because obviously bleeding is the first thing that's going to be an issue in trauma. Um, so I always keep a tourniquet. As a matter of fact, I think there I have a friggin' tourniquet uh, in just about every little you know nook and cranny in the house and in the car. Um, so the kit that I actually carry, um, I have a small IFAC that stays up front with me in the glove box. Um, it's got a tourniquet. Uh, it has, um, it's got gauze in it. So if I need to pack a wound or do something like that, uh, I can do that. And then it's also got uh, a needle in there for needle decompression. If you know, someone's got a collapsed lung or something to that effect. And then literally my med kit bumps up from there. If I have to, um, potentially treat more than one person. I actually have a large, um, it's like a two gallon Ziploc bag in the back that has chest seals, more tourniquets. It's got, uh, is it Cellulox gauze, uh -huh. Kevin, uh, that helps stop bleeding. Um, and then, uh, you know, um, I've got, I think I actually have a splint in there that, um, you know, a lot of this stuff I was able to acquire, you know, over almost 20 years in the military and just um, having the the ability to have access to that stuff, I always built out a good med kit. So that way, if something happened, um, I would be prepared. In the military, that's kind of like what we did in special operations. We always had med kit just in case. You know, in my on my personal kit, I carry the same thing that Kurt does, and then in my vehicle, I carry like a North American Rescue, more like a paramedic bag, basically where I could do the uh, march ag algorithm. But it's it's hugely important, Kev. You know, when you teach TCCC, you know, you see this. You know, TCCC to me is like the. I mean, it's trauma, but you're you're dealing with things that you would normally see in a survival type situation, as opposed to all the extra stuff that would bog you down as an EMT or paramedic. You're really focused on 
the stuff that's important for uh, individual survival or survival for your family. Right, and that's the, and that's the big thing with med gear. Um, you can, it, you know, speaking of going like down rabbit holes, like we we always talk about, you know, going with different stuff. You can literally, you could literally go down a rabbit hole in your med bag be actually bigger than your go bag that you have. Um, you know, it, it's it, the biggest thing with your med gear is to make sure that, uh, you know, just to say like what Kurt and uh, you and Kurt were talking about, you know, you want to have, you want to have some tourniquets um, because that's, you know, massive bleeding is obviously going to kill you relatively quick. Um, you want to have, uh, I, I prefer Sealox rapid. Um, but there's there's uh, three of them. The trauma committee um, says that hey, if you use any of these three, you're good to go. And that's combat gauze, uh, Celox rapid, and the Cheeto gauze are the three that the trauma committee uh, suggest using. And I think that's what I was trying to say. Celox. Yeah, yeah. I'm like cellulox. Yeah, I knew sounded kind of right. <clears throat> it's a. Uh, it's like an English war. It's it's actually made in England, so oh, okay. it's it's so it, it, they actually may pronounce it a little silly like that. Anyway, <laughs> they pronounce everything silly over there. Um, but you know, I would say you know you know to to plug your guys' kit and my kit that I make. You know, those are two nice compact kits. Your guys' med kit that you make. Um, you know, it does have the rats tourniquet in there, so that's an extra an extra something that you could use. Um, you know, to stop massive bleeding, um, you know, my, my bleeding control kit has, uh, you can either have a cat or a soft tea, whichever, whichever one you prefer. And then, you know, I can even put, you know, Sealox rapid or combat gauze. And then, and then you have the, uh, the option of a chest seal, um, and some, a couple other items, you know, that pretty much do the same thing as your, you know, is the military teaches your march algorithm you know massive hemorrhage airway respiration circulation and hypothermia and that's you know that believe it or not your part of your med kit can actually be used for other stuff like your mylar blanket that's in your med kit well that can also be used to just keep you warm if you're in a cool environment anyway sure. um so you know, I, I always like to have stuff in my kit, and I know you guys too. You you always want something that has more than one use to it. You know, things that have multiple uses are ideal when you're when you're bugging out or when you're getting out somewhere and you only have a very limited supply of stuff to take with you. Uh, but you can there's also comfort items like like uh, your kit that you make, Mike. You know, it's got a lot of comfort items in it. You know, for little scrapes, bruises. Um, Benadryl, even Benadryl can be used for anti-nausea in adults. If you take, you know, your capsules are 25 milligrams. If you buy children's, there are 12 and a half. So in adults, if we take 12 and a half milligrams of Benadryl, it actually works as an anti-memetic, which is basically an anti-nausea medication. Damn, they're all so, over today. Right, so Benadryl, you know, Benadryl's got a couple of good uses. You know, it can be used as an, you know, as anti-nausea or it can be used as your baseline allergic reaction type medication as well. And there's all kinds of different, um, even in my go bag, it sounds a little silly, but I actually have, uh, um, uh, two little guides that have edible plants and plants that you can use for, for medical uses or uh, other uses in my go bag. And they're, uh, so, because I can't remember all that stuff off the top of my head, which plants are good and what, which ones go to each, you know, I like eating, but I don't need a whole lot of plants when I'm walking around <laughs> out in the wild. So. They don't make brownie trees. Yeah. 
If they made sushi plants, I would be all over that. That sounds delicious. We're all hungry now as we're talking about food. So, you know, when you're looking at uh, survival kits, you know, Kevin's bleeder pack, it's actually what me and Kurt use inside of our uh, IFAX on our kit when we're doing training uh, because it addresses all the stuff that he talked about in that March algorithm, which is hugely important in trauma. You know, our kit's more wilderness survival, outdoor stuff. Whatever you decide to go with, make sure that you're making that kit custom customized for your situation, your family situation. You know, if you have kids, for example, and you have a kid who has allergic reaction to bees, you need to carry, what is it? The, uh, the EpiPen. The if EpiPen. You, if your kid has EpiPens, you need to have extra ones that you keep in your go bags because if, in a situation like that, you're not, you're not going to think to go through and grab stuff. So we actually tell people at the fire department um, whenever they go to those shelters to bring se at least 72 hours worth of your medications or anything that you would need for you when you come to these shelters. Yeah, you know, it, it, outside of survival situations like uh, natural catastrophes too, if you're just driving down the road, you're you know exposed to a whole bunch of hazards if you're hiking in the wilderness. So it just, it just behooves of you, is that, is that what it says? <laughs> behooves of you. Yeah. I think that's the first time I've used that since I've been on the military, or I did. I don't think I've ever used used it in the military. <laughs> that's the first time I've said it. Yeah, behooves of you to uh, to have a med kit anyway. Oh yeah, you should always have one on you. Um, you know, you guys, we've been working with each other for almost three months now. Oh, no, annoying. And, and, yeah. <laughs> oh, I mean, <laughs> yeah, it's been great. Yeah. Jesus, can't wait for it to be over. Um, <laughs> but I met you know every night that we've went out, you know. I always have one of my bleeder control kits with me in my, in my cargo pocket. Uh, I, you know, my, my thing is having, having, yeah, we do too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm the medic. I'm here to take care of you yeah, guys. Yeah, true, true. So, um, true. but you know, my thing is it, it would look awfully silly on the news. If you saw that devil dog consulting's uh, CEO died from a <laughs> massive bleed out that he had nothing to take care of himself with. Uh, you That's know, funny. if somebody else wanted to take over my company, I'm pretty sure that that probably wouldn't help them. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. so what, what do you, um, uh, where can you find those bleeder pack kits? Uh, they're, they're on my website. There's, uh, on Instagram, uh, I actually have pictures of a couple of them. Um, I'm, I'm in the process, uh, in the next couple of months, I'm going to be redoing my website. Cause, uh, me and Kurt were talking earlier today. My website's literally like a GoDaddy website and it looked like a firefighter paramedic put together, <laughs> like maybe a firefighter paramedic. That's not that smart, put it together. <laughs> uh, but there's, there's, uh, on that website, there's, uh, you can send me an email through the website and it'll come directly to my uh, email. There's been several people that have contacted me that way, and I've I've mailed them uh, bleeder, the uh, bleeding control kits as well through that way. Um, so that's that's really you know medical. You can just go all, all on and on. We literally could do a whole. Episode what about T Triple C training? Can you can uh, can somebody? Because I know we talked about hosting T Triple C training. Is that something that civilians could do? Yeah, it, it actually is. Believe it or not, there's uh, there's several different courses. Um, there's literally just a bleeding control course that's about two hours that kind of introduces you to tourniquets um, and uh, hemostatic gauze. Then you can graduate to, uh, we teach a lot of law enforcement and fire back home to the LEFER TCC course, which is law enforcement first responder tactical casualty care course. That's a one What's that day. acronym? Jeez. Yeah, I know it's a gigantic acronym. <laughs> um, 
And then you've got, you know, TCCC not too long ago actually changed the way that they do it. They have a TCCC AC, which is all combatants, um, which is what, you know, everybody, uh, the big army and the big Marine Corps and all that, they, they put all their guys through that are going in combat. And then you have the TCCC uh, MP, which is the medical provider. And that's where you start getting into more of the surgical crikes um, and, you know, IVs and stuff like that, that you would have to have that type of medical training prior um, to do it. And there's, so both of those courses are good. Um, there's, you know, I would love to teach anybody those courses and it would be great to, if the average citizen, um, the bleeding control class, the two hour one is being pushed now like CPR was in the 70s and 80s. That's, Can you teach that? What's that? The bleeder control one. Yes. Oh man, yeah. that'd actually be a good seminar uh, little yeah. thing. That'd be a good one to do like uh, with your guys overland to come there and have yeah, a two hour cool, block of instruction of just a, oh, yeah. and, and that goes over not only tourniquets because let's face it, everybody, you're not always gonna have a tourniquet on you, but you know, the, the little bleeding control class, when I teach it, I go over, you know, if you're at a restaurant in your suit, you're obviously probably not gonna have my bleeding control kit or your medic kit on you because you're in an, you're out to dinner in a nice restaurant. Well, you know, I show, I show you that, hey, that tie that you have on, you can take that off and use that as a pressure bandage, you know, if something happens or that napkin that's sitting on the table, how to take it off and use it or even, even, even your uh, underwear, right? Your <laughs> underwear, or even like a Here garbage bag. I use. Well, I just mean I use. I use spandex kind of underwear, so that's yeah, got, it's like real. You've got. I like, got yoga pants, so true that. <laughs> I'm just, sorry. And uh, you know, even like uh, your your average gar standard garbage bag, you would be surprised when you start wrapping it and pulling on it. It actually gives you tensile strength, and you can actually create a tourniquet-like effect with several items that are just laying around your house. Um, so that's actually an excellent course um, for Some people. Field expedient stuff is yes. what we would have called it in the military, right. right? Something, you know, you're only limited by your imagination. Yeah. And that's that's really... Don't that, say that. Right. Okay, don't say that. Especially with you. Yeah, so. don't say that. I'm all imagination. <laughs> yeah. Hey, so that's really good information, man. We appreciate that. And if you guys uh, want to get more information on that, feel free to hit up Kevin on his, uh, his email or his Instagram. You guys can find his contact information on his IG which is Devil Dog Consult at Devil Dog Consult because they wouldn't give him the ING. Yeah, they wouldn't. Yeah, no big deal. So, hey, that, that closes this episode. It's a long episode because we talk a lot, but it's a lot of information. I mean, when you're talking about uh, worst case disaster preparedness and considerations, there's a whole bunch of considerations to consider, and there's a whole bunch of different ways that you can go about it. Like we stressed before, you know, coming coming out with this information and just absorbing it is not good enough. You need to develop a plan of action given your circumstances. Um, so we hope that you guys do do that. We do offer a lot of courses that are in this realm, in this space. Go to philcraftsurvival.com or see us at our Instagram accounts, which we, you know, mainly market, which is at philcraftsurvival and our personal accounts, which is at Survivor and at Kurt underscore Team Philcraft. Uh, thanks guys for tuning in. We appreciate the support. We look forward to some upcoming courses that we got in Durango, Colorado, which is going to be epic because Durango is beautiful and uh, we love it there. Uh, we'll be teaching a couple of survival courses on the 12th and 26th of August, but also we'll be teaching carbine and pistol uh, those same weekends. So check out our course catalog on philcraftsurvival.com. Appreciate it, guys, and until uh, next time. Stay alert. Stay alive. Deuces.